Hey, the reason I had so many uh, animal videos in there uh, was because animals, when they're in pain and disarray, are essentially helpless creatures. Uh, that elephant, for instance, would have drowned in that well if those men hadn't come to his rescue. And so uh, whenever there is a need, we ought to respond to that need. And so, my friends, every day you're alive, you're changing the world. You change it for me, I change it for you. Is this the world you want? Are we living in the world you want to be living in? Is this the world we want to raise our kids in? Is this the world we want? We are making it. We can either do something about it, or we can let it just drift off into the way that it's naturally going to flow. We are in a new series called A City on a Hill. This is the third series of three that is journeying us through the entire story of Scripture. And we have finally, finally come to the last phase. This is essentially Christmas morning at Restoration because we're going to talk about the birth narrative of Jesus today. But before we do that, um, let me fill you in on some of the backstory. The backstory goes something like this. See, God creates humans to co-rule and to co-labor with him, right? He wants to take creation somewhere beautiful and somewhere purposeful, but humans fail. Rather, immediately, humans fail in their vocation to partner with God in this regard. Instead of advancing God's plans and God's kingdom, humans, you know, we advance our plans and our own kingdom. And immediately, right, we step outside of relationship with God, immediately we begin to hurt, we begin to hurt others. The world falls into disarray, begins to decay. The result is always pain, the result is always hurt. And humans are created and designed to function in love for God and love for others, and yet we have chosen selfishness. And so the result is always going to be hurt when we choose the self over love. But so it was, selfish ambition was driving the world. And fear and pain and chaos and turmoil and hurt became the most prominent experience of the human upon the face of the planet. Or in other words, humans were the problem. Humans are the problem. It baffles me when people blame God for the problems that we have because God certainly is not the problem. We are the ones who chose to reject God and abandon God. And yet God from the very beginning said, I am going to come down into the mess that I see you have created and I'm going to do something about it. I'm not going to leave it up to you to fix the problem. I am going to come down and fix the problem on your behalf. You see, from day one, God said that he would crush the head of evil, even though evil would strike the heel of humanity's rescuer. And from day one, God said that he was going to fix the problem, but that he would do it through problems. Here's what he says in Genesis 3:15. I will put enmity, a deep-seated hatred between you, this is serpent, the embodiment of evil, and the woman. Between your offspring, humanity, I'm, I'm sorry, between your offspring, which is evil, and hers, humanity, he, an offspring of humanity, will crush your head, even though you will strike his heel. And so the story goes, right? Pain and corruption and violence and wickedness and hurt. We do horrible things to other people, and they in turn do horrible things to us. The world is backwards and upside down, and isn't the world only getting worse? That's certainly how the story goes. So for those of you who like this sort of thing, the story goes in a map. How many of you guys like maps? Okay. This is the, this is the general region of the, where the Bible takes place, uh, Mesopotamia, uh, Palestine, Egypt, the general region where the scripture takes place. God, in order to fix this problem through humanity, approaches a guy by the name of Abram uh, from the land of Ur which is down in uh, the Persian region, near the Persian Gulf. And he says, through you, I'm going to do something good for all the world. And so I'm going to draw you away from your uh, ancestors. I'm going to take you up through the Mesopotamian region, up through the valley of the rivers, and I'm going to bring you down into the land of Canaan. 
And this is the promised land. This is the land I'm going to give your ancestors. And through your ancestors, I'm going to do good for all of the world, right? That is really how God acts, right? He chooses one person so that through that one person, he can do good for all the world. He does this through Abraham. He then does it through Moses. He then does it through the nation of Israel, through the one nation of Israel. He wants to bless and bring a light to all of the nations of the world. Of course, he does it through Jesus, through the one man, Jesus. He is going to do good for all of the world. But the people find themselves enslaved in Egypt. So they go a little further. There's a famine in the land. They have to go down to Egypt. Several generations have passed. The new king, the new pharaoh, does not recognize these people as his own. He thinks they're a threat, and so he enslaves them. They cry out to God in their oppression and in their slavery, and God liberates them through this miraculous act known as the Exodus. They walk through the Red Sea to the mountain of Sinai, and it is at the mountain of Sinai that God gives them instructions on what it means to be his people, on what it means to be genuinely human, on what it means to represent him faithfully to the world, that through this one nation, through this one people, God wanted to bless so mightily and so amazingly that all the world would come to know him because of the way they were blessed, that they would be drawn to the light that they are living. And so they go back to the land that God had promised them would be theirs. But they fail to live in relationship with God, just like Adam and Eve did. They reject God, and so they end up back in slavery. God sends his own people into exile among the Babylonians. There they weep and they cry and they confess their sin, and they agree with God that they have been wicked And so God eventually does send them home. But they knew that they had not returned from exile. That even though they had returned to the land, that they had not returned from exile. You see, God's people eventually um, find themselves in the land of Persia. Persia comes and takes over uh, Babylon. Persia then is the one who sends the people home. You can advance the slide. There should be a little, little, there you go, Persia. Persia is the one, uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, sends his people back to the land. But again, they, uh, weren't, they, they were still in exile. Even though they had returned to the land to build the temple and to build the walls of Jerusalem, they knew that God had not returned with them. The presence of God had never returned there. And so after Persia, Greece, we have to go to a new map because we have to expand. Greece is the largest kingdom the world had ever known by this point. Greece, run by Alexander the Great, takes over Persia and becomes the superpower of the day. Once Alexander the Great dies at the ripe old age of 32, his kingdom goes into civil war. The Seleucids, which is the green uh, territory, uh, takes over the northern half. The Ptolemies take over the southern half. Jerusalem, you can see, it's a little blue X there by the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, they are kind of caught in the middle, but officially they are part of the Seleucid territory. And the reason this is important is because Antiochus IV Epiphanes of the Seleucids decides that everybody needs to become Greek. At the threat of death, you need to become Greek. And so your culture, your traditions, your religion, your way of life, your language, everything about your life cannot exist unless it conforms to the Greek way of life. And so he goes against the Jewish people in particular, and he stamps out Judaism and attempts to make everything Greek in the land. But the Jewish people know their history. They know that they had failed. They know they have caved into pressures like this in the past. And so they rise up. One person in particular rise up against them to fight him. His name is Metathius Maccabees. He, along with his sons and several other priests and farmers, they get some pitchforks in their hands, and they go to war against the greatest army the world had ever known at this point. And miraculously, they prevail. 
Antiochus for Epiphanes uh, at one point to, to begin this, this war uh, had entered God's temple. He had sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. And in response to this, the Maccabees go and they fight against Antiochus IV. They cleanse that temple after everything is seen to be victorious. And for eight days, they light candles. And they celebrate the very first Hanukkah, the story of Hanukkah. But the Jewish people had regional power for the first time since the exile. But it's not going to last very long because the Romans are going to conquer the land in 63 B.C., making the world's largest empire that the world had ever known, spanning masses. You can see, again, Jerusalem and this little blue X right down here. Rome is a massive empire. In 63 B.C., they want to maintain some semblance of control among the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and so they appoint a man by the name of Herod to take over control to be the king of the Jews residing in Jerusalem. And it was during King Herod's reign that God's set time had fully come. He sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. The time had come, right? God had been anticipating this day since the very beginning. God did not use Jesus as a backup plan. It's not like, oh man, my my people have fallen into sin now. I guess I need to save them somehow. No, from the very beginning, God had intended that Jesus would come into the world to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus was not a backup plan. God knew that to be in a love relationship with humanity, right, it was going to require a choice for them to actually love him. And if there was a choice to love him, then there was a choice to reject him. And so God knew from the very beginning, before creation was even started, that God would be sending Jesus to fix the problem that humans were going to create. And so when humans do, in fact, reject him, he's all ready with a response. He's going to fix the problem through humans, but humans are the problem, and so humans can't fix the problem, and so to solve this little conundry, God becomes a human in order to fix the problem that humans have created. Or as John put it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And every Christmas we remember this story, don't we? You probably know how the story goes. There were magi out in the land of Persia, and they looked up in the sky, and they saw these interplanetary signs, and they interpreted them, and they determined that there was a king that was going to be born to the Jews. And so they travel across the desert to where the Jews resided in Jerusalem. And of course, if there's going to be a king born to the Jews, they're going to go to where any king would be born, and that is in the palace in Jerusalem. And so they go. But the king, the one residing in the palace, Herod, He wasn't aware that there was a king being born of the Jews. He was the king of the Jews. So that's a problem. So to solve this, he says, hey, why don't you guys go, investigate this, discover who this is, find the king of the Jews for me, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Clever, perhaps. Of course, he didn't really want to go worship him. He wanted to kill this newborn king. After the, the Magi visit Jesus, they prepare to leave, but they are told in a vision not to go back the same way. Don't go back to Jerusalem. Don't go back to the palace. Go a different route. And so they do. Here's what we pick up in Matthew chapter 2. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. So before the prince of peace could even walk, he was a homeless refugee on the run 
because his life was at stake. There is very little about this Christmas story that is comfortable, meek and mild, right? These adjectives that we ascribe to Jesus during his birth just do not compute to the actual story. Very little about this is comfortable. He was a homeless refugee on the run because his life was at stake. But isn't this how the Messiah was to appear? As they understood, the Messiah was going to appear with the, this way. If you think about why God indwelled a human person, decided to be dependent upon her, to grow her up in her womb and to feed her, uh, to, to, to feed God, to be, uh, that God was dependent on this woman, to, to be clothed and taken care of, it was not to give us a better spirituality. It was not just to make us more moral people or better people. It was to take his good creation that he loves but has been twisted and broken and beaten down and ruined. That somehow in this infant child, God is going to set the world back upright. Somehow in this infant child, God is going to bring justice and peace to the world. You know, in households where there are kids who sit on staircases and they listen as their parents scream at each other. Jesus is that child's peace. And in homeless camps that fear for winter because they just do not know how they're going to survive the elements, right? Jesus is their hope. And in schools full of children who long to be loved, but their only extended love when they make the grade, or when they make the team. Man, Jesus is their joy. And marriage is shattered by selfishness and dried up concern for their spouse. Somehow Jesus is their love. God has come to set the world back upright. Not just to make us better people, not just to give us a context like this so that we can come and do fun things like this and be together, and be all cheery. You know, God has come to set the world up right. You know, for so much of my Christian life, I learned and I prayed and I worshiped so that my own spirituality would grow, so that I might become a better version of myself, so that I might be more moral. But that is not the package that God is offering his people. God is offering total and utter freedom from sin and rebellion and death and the enslavement and the bondage that we all find ourselves in, and this infant child, and the life that he lived, very much including his death and his resurrection, there is a set-free humanity, a new humanity, a new way to live and exist upon this planet, the way that we had always intended to live and exist upon this planet. There is an open door to enter into a new life through this infant child being born in the world. Total and utter recreation of all things is what God is offering, nothing less. And our own spirituality and our own morality and our own goodness falls under that umbrella. God wants to see you recreated. He wants to see you live the life that he had always intended you to live. And so the beauty of Jesus is that this is how God is going to do that, right? He's setting the world back upright. This is how God is bringing justice to the world. This is how he is liberating his people and fulfilling the human vocation. This is God's mission in Jesus and it has been since day one. So for the God who is among his people, it does not make sense for him to appear in a palace where there's comfort, right? He is coming down into the mess of his people. He's coming into the broken hearts and the twisted minds 
in the contorted way that we do things, right? He is coming down into the thick of the chaos, not into the palaces. He is our Emmanuel, and if he is with his people, then he is with them in the darkest of times, piercing the darkness with his light. He is with us in the worst of times, giving us hope in the midst of all of that. And so this double mission of liberation and restoration is really what Matthew has in mind. He's looking at the story of Jesus and he's, and he's addressing these, these essential needs of the human person and how the story has progressed to this point, right? He's looking back at the people of Israel, the people who have gone through the Exodus and the people who have been exiled, and he's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that you've actually been longing for. Here's how he continues. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. And so Herod is paranoid. He always had been paranoid. He had fought and clawed his way into power. He had essentially declared himself to be king of the Jews. But the problem was that Herod was only half Jewish, and so he didn't have the trust of the people. The people didn't like Herod, and so, uh, you know, to get on their good side, he tried to reestablish the temple for them, but that didn't really work all that well. He wanted to get on the people's good side, but the people did not trust him. And it didn't help that he was just a complete ruthless murderer. You know, when his aristocracy, the, the wealthy ruling class, his cabinet essentially disagreed with him, he had 45 of them murdered. That's what he did to his cabinet who disagreed with him. I'm just going to kill them off, get a new cabinet in. And then he went and plundered their homes and stole their gold to replenish his own coffers. He had his first wife executed, and shortly thereafter he had his mother-in-law executed. He killed three of his own sons because he thought that they were a threat to his throne. On his deathbed, he ordered that the leading citizens of Jericho all be executed so that there would be weeping and mourning at his funeral. That's Herod the Great. Herod would not have cared in the slightest about killing 20 to 30 kids in Bethlehem if he knew that one of these kids were destined to take over his throne. And so Joseph is warned of this, and he and his family then flee to Egypt. He got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, you may recall, if you've been around the last uh, couple months that we've journeyed um, through the story of Scripture, that Egypt wasn't just a nation. Egypt was an archetype. It was a symbol of everything that is wrong with the world. It was the pinnacle of everything that had been corrupt in the world. Right? This is the epitome of evil, and that's what Egypt represents. And so God is liberating his people from the bondage of the Egyptian nation, but they, they are not liberated from the bondage of evil. And that's the problem with the original Exodus, the first Exodus, is that God liberated his people from the bondage of the Egyptians, but they still had corrupt, wicked hearts that were bent in on themselves, and they were not concerned with God or with others. They still continued to be selfish. And they knew this, right? They, they knew that they had been liberated, yes, from the Egyptians, but they had not been liberated from the wickedness of their human hearts because, man, centuries later, they ended up back in slavery among the Babylonians. And they still fought with their spouse. And they were still selfish. And they still neglected their children. And they still coveted what their neighbors had. And they still lusted after their neighbors. And they still did everything that was corrupt and wicked. They had been liberated from the Egyptians, but they had not been liberated from themselves. 
And that was a problem, right? Sin hadn't ended. The problem wasn't fixed. But every year as they celebrated this release from the bondage of the Egyptians, man, they looked forward to this day when God would actually liberate his people from the bondage of sin. And so what Matthew addresses in Jesus' family going back to Egypt is this act, right? The entire Old, St- Old, Old Testament narrative is being reimagined, right? This grand-scale exodus, not from Egypt, but from the bondage of the sinful nature is happening here. God is calling his son out of Egypt again. And not just Egypt as a nation, he is calling his son out of the Egypt of the sinful heart, the sinful bondage, right? He is doing something for all of the world. Jesus is taking on the role of Israel and fulfilling it through the role of the grand scheme exodus. God is doing something for all of the world through what he does for Jesus. But if you remember the story, as I had mentioned, right, Israel left Egypt, but they found themselves enslaved again in Babylon. And so another component of the story that Matthew is eager to address is that of the exile. Here's what he says. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. And so Matthew probably recognized that Rachel was buried in Bethlehem as she was, and he applied uh, that simple truth to the fact that all of these kids in Bethlehem, two years and younger, are being murdered by Herod. But Matthew is declaring that all this has been fulfilled. He's talking about something greater than that. Jeremiah 31, the context is that of the exile, that God is promising a deliverance of his people. Not only a deliverance from Babylon, that they would come back to the land, but a deliverance of this day that is coming when he will be their God, he will reign among them, he will be with them. That the true exile will take place. Yes, you are coming back to the land, but God had not returned with them, and so the people longed for the day when God would actually return to the land with them, when he would be their God and he would reign among them. And so Matthew quoting Jeremiah 31 in the context of Jesus' birth, is saying that's all taken place. God is with his people again. The Emmanuel, right? God with us. God is with his people. And not only that, but his rule is reigning. His kingdom has come. God and Jesus is doing for all of the world what he had always intended. He is fixing the problem. He is setting the world back upright. And so think of the year 2019. And the world in which we live. You know on average that that there is a, a mass shooting every day of the year in our world somewhere? It could be in a nightclub, it could be at a concert, it could be disgruntled employees going back to their you know, places where they had just been fired. Certainly mosques in New Zealand. I mean, think of the world in which we live where, where we do this to one another. I mean, think of the world in which we live where, you know, whether or not it's, it's true or not, like this, this fear and the, the idea and the concept behind it of, of someone going and, and <laughs> hijacking our kids' television shows and telling them to go burn their houses down to kill themselves. 
I mean, think of the world in which we live. We live in a world where racial tension exists. And where entire cities erupt in violence as rioting over injustices take place. I think of the incident in, in, uh, in Wisconsin that happened just two months ago. When this boy pulled up behind a school bus and this little girl got off the school bus and he said, you know what, she's the one. She's the one I'm going to kidnap today. She's the one I'm going to take hostage. She's the one I'm going to take. And he goes to her house and he shoots her parents and she drags her away to be enslaved under her bed, under his bed, in a cabin out in the woods. I mean, this stuff happens, right? The, the, the movies portray these things, but this is real life. Think of what happened in Morrisville. Or twisted minds, right? Hurt minds, hurt people. Think this is the solution to go kill their children and relatives? My friends, this is the world we live in. And these may seem like, you know, crazy examples, right? But like, every year in America, 40,000 people take their own life. This is the world we live in. Every year in America, a thousand abortions take place. This is the world we live in. Every day in America, the opioid addictions kill more people than 9-11. This is the world we live in. Think of the little girl who's, who watches her dad stand over her mother with a raised fist. It's the world we live in. Think of the person on the street trying to survive the cold nights, or think of the fact that we as a nation at Christmas time are going to spend $7 billion on presents for one another. And there are people who are dying of malaria because they can't afford a $10 net to cover their beds at night. And there are people dying of dehydration because they can't afford a $5 water filter. This is the world we live in. And then I think of my impatience with my children. I think of the way I treat my spouse at times. I think of the anger and the bitterness that we share, right, and that we exhibit towards one another. This is the world we live in. See, the bondage and the corruption of the world isn't just out there, right? We like to think that the world is horrible and those are the horrible people, but in here, we're the good ones. I don't have many problems, but think of my own heart for a minute. Let's confess, man. Let's get humble. Isn't the problem run through each one of us as well? But here's the thing. As we experience this worldwide exodus that God has enacted in Jesus Christ, the return from exile that God has enacted, the true and rightful king is now among his people, and not only among us, but in us, as we are temples of the living God, we become exodus people. We become liberating people. That is our vocation now. The vocation that God gave Adam and Eve, which they failed, and then he gave again to Israel, which they failed. Jesus has fulfilled it. And Jesus, in turn, grants that same vocation to us. We are Exodus liberating, redeeming people. We are empowered by God's Spirit to do what Christ did. And so here's the thing. The church is not just a fun game that God made up. Right, we have a real responsibility that has to be taken seriously. And in this day and age, right, where this is the world we live in, the role of the church to be a city on the hill is more important than ever. 
See, the days of playing church or merely attending church, they're over. They've got to be over, man. We must be the church. You see, the ethic of love that we are established on and that empowers everything we do is the only thing, only power, only ethic that can reverse the sinful, selfish heart. It is the only thing that will prevail against violence and hatred within our world. And so we must be known by our love. And if we are not known by our love, my friends, we're not the church. We might as well be a community center. We might as well do something else, but we are not the church. The church must be defined by the love of God for it and then empowered to extend that same love to the world beyond its borders. And so do you guys, you know, we, we have cards like this. Like, do you guys know how important a message like this is, that God loves you and so do we? But here's the thing. This first line, that God loves you, man, we, we bring this out to the world. The world doesn't understand this. Do you guys get that? The, the world, the, the majority of our neighbors and the majority of our coworkers and the majority of our friends, they think that God is passive, apathetic. Maybe he's ambivalent, but certainly God can't love me because then why would I be going through what I'm going through? And, and, and maybe he's just not all powerful. Maybe he doesn't have the ability to do anything about my situation, but this is not a general understanding that the world has, that God loves them desperately. And the second line, and so do we, that the church loves the world, yeah. Ask your friends, ask your neighbors, ask your coworkers, hey, what's your impression of the church? Oh, you mean the hypocritical, judgmental, bigoted, anti-everything, money-hungry, sex-driven institution, all that place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not get started on the church. Man, we have a responsibility, my friends. And we have a lot of work to catch up on because the church has not done a great job within its history of presenting the love of God to the world. A generation ago, as the civil rights movement was just beginning, Dr. Martin Luther King's home was attacked. Someone threw a bomb in his kitchen window. It blew up his kitchen. It blew off his front porch. Luckily, nobody was injured in the process. But as mobs of angry black citizens rushed to his door, ready to riot and to fight, he stood upon the remains of his front porch, and he said this. Don't do anything panicky, because he who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. He then continued by saying this, we must love our white brothers no matter what they do to us. We must make them know that we love them. Jesus still cries out in word that echo across the centuries, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. We must meet hate with love. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only Love can do that. The only ethic that will ever drive out hate in our world is the love of God working in us. And shouldn't we be the ones who are forgiven and the ones who have experienced this love be the first in line to extend that love to the world? And so here's the challenge that we are the church. We are the ones who have been grasped by this love, and my friends, we must then be the church because if we do not, if we do not take our calling and our vocation seriously as the church to be the light upon the hill, to cast light into the darkness that is the world, and not just the world, it's in your hearts. It's in your household. 
it's in our neighbor's heart, in our neighbor's household, then the world will continue to slide further and further into decay. My friends, God did not redeem us simply so that we could have heaven when we die. He redeemed us so that we would be his agent of redemption. We have a job to do, guys, to be the church. I'm going to invite the band forward, and we're going to reflect on this as we sing one final song together. Friends, in a world where tragedy and terror seem to reign all around us, we need to take the church seriously. What we do, like this experience and how we love each other and how we live our lives as those who have been transformed by Jesus Christ is more important than ever before. And I hope and I pray that these, are not, these words are not falling on deaf ears because we have a huge responsibility. You know who's hurting. I bet you could each name a family member or a coworker or a neighbor who is hurting. Because all who are far from God hurt, and that is when we hurt each other, right? And we have the solution. We have the solution to it all, and so we must then bring God's love with us everywhere we go and extend it to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to the world in which we live, my friends. God did not redeem you just to give you heaven when you die. He redeemed you in order that you would be his agent of redemption. And so you have a choice. You can either say, that's true, and I'm going to live into this vocation, and I'm going to watch the world begin to transform and change around me, or I can say, you know what, that's great, I'm going to take my heaven when I die, and you can let the world perish. But we will be responsible for the outcome. Heavenly Father, you have given us a very challenging task. But it's not possible, God, because with you all things are possible and it is not impossible, God, because you are the one who is with us doing it through us. And so we do not rely upon our own strength to accomplish the task and the vocation you have given us, Father. We rely on what you have done and what you will continue to do through us. And so, Father, I, you know, I, I pray that it would start with us. I, I pray that we would be the people who are confessing how we have participated in the wayward, broken world, Father. I pray that we would confess where we have been prideful and where we have been stubborn and when we have made decisions that have negatively affected other people, where we have hurt others because we chose to step outside of relationship with you, Father. Let us be a people of confession. Let the church confess how it's failed to, to live into your vocation for it. Father, we confess the church has not done a great job at representing you to the world. And I pray that we might be a humble enough people to accept that truth, but we would also acknowledge and know, Father, that today is a new day. And we have new decisions to make. And yeah, we're going to fail again in doing this, but tomorrow is a new day, and it's full of grace, and it's full of mercy, and we have new decisions to make. And so, Father, I, you know, I, I pray that we would apply this first to ourselves, but then may we look into the world. I, I, think, of, I think of the, the, the house two blocks away from me, Father, that, um, that the husband died of an overdose just last week. And how I never got to know this house, and I never got to know these people, even though they are my neighbors, they are in my neighborhood, Father, I never got to know them, and yet... 
I don't know, God, like what could have changed if I would have been a little more bold? What could have changed if I would have just spoken some hope into their life, if I would have introduced them to Jesus? I don't know, God. But what I do know is that I didn't do it. And so I pray that you might be inspired, Father, to open our eyes and to lift our hands and to lift our voice, Father, and to look around and say, you know what? We live in a hurting community. We live in a hurting world that people are doing things to others and, and, and they're receiving the hurt of other people. And so we have a response. We have the light, Father. We have the life. We have the love of Christ compelling us forward. And so God, may it be true of us. You have called us into a into a, such a challenging task, but your promise is that the gates of hell and Hades itself will not prevail against your church. And so let us not stand by passive, Father. Let us stand up. And with the same love that you have shown us, Father, go out into this world and love the hatred out of the world and love the death out of the world and free them from the bondage of sin and death, Father, just as you have with us. Empower us to do it, Father, we do ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.